everyone and welcome to another episode of The Plain Truth and this week we're going to be talking about turbulence. Joining me as always is the legend that is Captain Al. Hi Captain Al. A very good evening Matt. And how are you? I'm very well, thank you. And your good self? Oh, living the dream as always. There we are. That's the mandatory pleasantries out of the way. Uh, Joining us, actually, we have another special guest joining us today, which I'm very uh, excited to say. Uh, A gentleman who has the pleasure slash misfortune of working for a company called WeatherQuest that's based here in Norwich. Uh, It gives me my great pleasure to welcome Dan Holly. Hi, Dan. Yeah, hi there, Matt. They're they're a great company to work for. Trust me on that one. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, well, with uh, with Jim Bacon as the as uh, the previous CEO, who could possibly say exactly. otherwise? Absolutely. Uh, now, uh, Dan, I've uh, troubled your your rare opportunity of an evening off to uh, talk about the word turbulence. Now, turbulence is something that we come across quite uh, regularly when it comes to flying, and uh, really, I have literally no idea what turbulence is. So, I wondered if perhaps you could fill me in. Yeah, sure. So uh, turbulence is primarily driven by what we call wind shear. Um, And that's basically where the winds are changing speed or direction, either in the horizontal or the vertical. So, you know, the atmosphere is very chaotic. It is a fluid. It's constantly changing. And there will be boundaries where you've got these sharp gradients in temperature, for example, but also these sharp gradients in sort of wind speed or direction. So if you're crossing one of these boundaries, you're going to experience a lot of twisting and turning motions and eddies and that sort of thing and that will ultimately uh, induce turbulence as well and there, there are many different ways that you can get turbulence obviously the one that probably comes to mind first off is is near thunderstorms because there's a lot of motion going on within a thunderstorm and that affects the air around it um, but other places where you can get turbulence are uh, near hills as well so if the air is flowing over a hill on the leeward side you'll get a lot of turbulence developing as well with standing waves um, so if an airport is near, near a mountain range, for example, such as Denver and Colorado, then that could have an impact on, on aircraft trying to land or take off there, depending on the wind direction, of course, relative to the high ground that's nearby. Um, but another place that you can get turbulence is, is on the edge of jet streams as well, because there's a sharp gradient of wind speed between within the jet stream and outside of it. And that sharp gradient can also induce a lot of spin and a lot of uh, turbulence and, and eddies and that sort of thing there as well. So uh, th- thanks, Dan. That that's really good. The, the the interesting point for me, obviously, is so you're saying there's obviously quite a lot of uh, uh, movement in the air, essentially, which is what's generating that that bump, if you like, that we're feeling. Now, Al, obviously, that has a major impact on how you're planning uh, your routes, presumably, as well, because uh, I mean, we've all seen horror stories and photographs of, of people being thrown around in the air inside the aircraft as a result of this. So, I mean, what, what steps do you try and do? Uh, what data do you have access to, if you like, to, to change your plan, for example, uh, to try and avoid these? And what the inf- impact does the uh, turbulence have on the aircraft when you're flying? Okay, well, we're lucky in Europe that we have access to some pretty good weather prediction computer systems. But I think Dan will probably admit that it's not an exact science, the forecasting of turbulence. And where you're using basically a paper chart with some symbols drawn on it with your route superimposed, you've got to really think in in three dimensions because the difference of a couple of hundred feet can be the difference between a really smooth ride and really quite a rough ride. 
and you know maybe just uh, a few hundred meters left or right of that can have uh, the same effect so uh, typically uh, when Dan was talking about jet streams and I know a lot of people kind of struggle visualizing these things because like a lot of things if you can't see it it's difficult to believe that it's there it's a bit like electricity some people still think it's you know it's it's weird magic but what i say to <laughs> only my in clients Norfolk, when i think yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what i say to my clients when we're discussing turbulence with regards to fear of flying is try to imagine a river or a stream and there are parts of that river or stream that are quite sort of turbulent with with white water and there are other periods where it's very very calm and if you think about the river or the stream as its whole journey, well, that's very similar to uh, an airline flight. So we have planning charts, we have significant weather charts uh, that reasonably accurately predict where there is going to be cumulonimbus clouds, uh, their thunderstorm clouds in simple terms, and where we have jet streams. Uh, and there can be many jet streams just in just in Europe. And whilst they're predominantly um, from the west traveling east uh, they do change direction from time to time and all of a sudden they take a sudden dive to the south so you're not just necessarily if you're flying west to east you're not just sat in one or parallel in one you're you're crossing them as well so we do try to uh, plan our route to avoid the the worst of the forecast turbulence the difficulty that uh, myself face and probably the meteorologists face is it is just a forecast. And there are many occasions where we get turbulence that was just not forecast at all, or equally where really bad turbulence is forecast and there isn't any. And so it can be a bit frustrating. Um, and unfortunately, we don't really have any substantial equipment on board the aircraft that can forecast clear air turbulence we can quite clearly see uh build-ups so where there's cloud because our weather radar can reflect off moisture but what it can't do is it can't reflect off clear air so yeah it's it's a challenge um and i i genuinely believe that in maybe the next 10 or 15 years the technology for being able to accurately predict turbulence will get a lot better uh, what what do you think then what, what's your thoughts on that yeah i'd like to think so and and in some ironic way i think aviation is going to play a key role in that as well because we rely very heavily on the measurements that get taken on board of planes that then get fed into the computer models that drive the forecast at the end of the day so um you know the more we can get measurements from high up in the atmosphere the better understanding we'll have of these jet streams and, and hopefully the better we can then um, predict them further down the line but like you say the jet stream i think a lot of people think of it as like a straight line across the atlantic for example from canada to the uk but actually it, it can wave about quite a bit you get lots of ridges and troughs in it and that makes it very complicated to pick out parts of the jet stream that are more likely to to produce the you know the areas of quite bad turbulence in places um, and, and as a result, the winds are not necessarily going from west to east. They can go back on themselves sometimes as well. So it, it's incredibly complex, the upper atmosphere, and it changes all the time. So, you know, you take off from Heathrow, um, but it's always evolving on that journey as well. It doesn't st stay in a fixed position, even while you're flying across the Atlantic. It does change over time. 
Absolutely. One of the things that I sometimes talk to people about, and they think that I'm barking mad. <laughs> no, is surely that not, Captain Al. <laughs> we, we obviously use very, very powerful computers. Um, you know, all of the, the Met offices around the world are, you know, all using these supercomputers. But of course, these supercomputers need data to work with. And people think I'm barking mad when I talk about weather reporting boys out in the Atlantic that are taking you know, the sea level pressure, uh, the height of the waves, uh, the temperature, the dew point, and that sort of thing. And these are all fed into the computer. And something that Dan alluded to there is is the fact that, um, you know, it's hand in glove meteorology and, and aviation, because when we fly across the Atlantic, for example, uh, the aircraft either manually or automatically are sending weather data back that is fed into these computers. And admittedly, probably 10 or so years ago, when I was reasonably frequently traveling across the Atlantic, if we were flying on a non-standard route, so if, say, we were going down to Cancun in Mexico, um, we would be asked to send hourly MET reports. Um, and this would just be the wind uh, direction, velocity, and the outside air temperature, and this is, you know, fed into those those supercomputers. It, it's not just all by magic. <laughs> Quite. But, but people generally think that, you know, that, that, you know, these these weather reporting boys out in the Atlantic were, you know, stuff of the 1940s, but they're still out there, aren't they, Dan? Tell me I'm not lunatic. <laughs> no, no, they're, they're definitely still out there. In fact, last night, one of them recorded a wind gust of 112 miles an hour off the uh, south coast of Ireland, so... You know, they're still very much a key part of all this sort of weather data assimilation that goes into these weather models, aviation, satellite data increasingly so as well, but obviously land-based weather stations as well. But for a country like the UK, where most of our weather comes in off the Atlantic, we don't have a great way really of seeing what is going on over the Atlantic. We've got some satellite data, but having aviation and planes going across the Atlantic all day uh, taking these measurements is is vital, really, to improve our forecasting of what may be coming towards Western Europe. So, absolutely, a very very simple illustration of that. I mean, I grew up in Southwest Wales, and if you want to know what the weather is going to be like in Southwest Wales tomorrow, just look at the weather in Waterford in Ireland, because <laughs> three quarters of the year, what Waterford has today will be your weather tomorrow. Right. It's as simple as that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's an interesting, uh, an interesting look on it. I suppose there's. Uh, and so, I mean, uh, we've mentioned jet streams there, obviously, and, and obviously turbulence is, is part of that, from what I understand. Uh, so, what does the turbulence actually do to the aircraft physically when you're flying it? Because I mean, we've all seen the horrific pictures, if you like, of people being thrown out of their seat because they didn't wear the seatbelt when told to, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, uh, is there any risk to the aircraft as a result of that turbulence truthfully uh the aircraft are designed to withstand severe turbulence now the cases where people have been injured in severe turbulence encounters uh they're as a result of you say not wearing their seatbelt or just encountering unexpected severe turbulence and in all those cases the aircraft survives because it's <laughs> It's tested to a far greater uh, G-loading than you and I can sustain <laughs> and a comfort level. Um, so one of the, the aspects that frequently comes up uh, when I'm talking to people um, is 
you know, as people talk about, you know, air bubbles and air pockets, well, as Dan mentioned earlier, the air is a fluid. It's difficult for a lot of people to think about it, but it, the air is, you know, very similar to water. So if you have turbulent water, um, then you get, you know, sort of bubbles within it, but they disappear. So we can't have voids within the air. So when people talk about, oh, suddenly, you know, we fell thousands of feet in turbulence. <laughs> well, no, you didn't. The difficulty is, and we, we've, you know, talked a little bit about this on a personal level, is that when we're sat on an aeroplane, we don't have any real easy way of um, judging uh, height changes, if you like. There's, there's no datum. So we're strapped to something that's, that's moving very quickly through the air. Um, so even a, a change of, you know, one or two feet is, is relatively significant. So uh, if I was to, you know, strap you to an office chair, and lift you up and down one or two feet it's quite noticeable to you yes and that's all that. the aircraft <laughs> that's all the aircraft is experiencing it, it's it's very very unusual for us to have anything more than you know 20 feet of altitude change in the majority of turbulence when we get into severe turbulence and when I mean, i've been flying i've flying for over 25 years, 14 and odd thousand hours. I've only encountered severe turbulence twice. Um, both occasions were short-lived. Um, no significant injuries, lots of spilt wine, the occasional spilt curry. Oh, but no. that's, that, <laughs> that, that's the end result. And they were variations in altitude of about 50 or 60 feet. It's just that people's perception as a human being uh, we've got very good motion detectors, so we can detect if we're being moved up and down a couple of feet. And, you know, we're not used to being moved in that sense. So we are quite sensitive to it. So uh, the aeroplanes are absolutely fine in turbulence. There's, uh, there are two people sat at the front of the aeroplane who will want to be out of that turbulence as much as you do. <laughs> Well, that sounds like a perfect place to bring that subject to a close. Thank you, Captain L. Thank you, Dan Holly. Thank you.